because growing up is being being wrong makes you grow up. Yeah. Like being eating shit grows you up. Like that's why kids grow you up. I think because because kids are just like kids don't give a shit. Like they shit their pants and they're not waiting till you're done with your inspiration. (laughs) They just chat their pants and that's your fucking problem. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we drew the map. Welcome back to Curious Creatures. This week, we continue our conversation with LCD Sound System founder, James Murphy. You guys come from an era and a a group, a grip of artists who just killed the B-side. I mean, when I mention B-sides now to, like, say, students in the college, they kind of look at you curiously because they're not quite sure what a B-side is and why it would be anything special because every... A side. Every track from the an album that was pulled off, of course, had to have to have set extra tracks for the B side of the twelve inch platter, or the seven inch, or the cassette. Like the B sides of your guys' bands, it, it was like really like it was an opportunity to do something crazy. Right. You're already in bands that normal people think are crazy people. Right. Like it's already anti-commercial in a in a in a yeah. circle that somehow manages to be successful. And then you get the B-sides and you're like, all right, well, this is just full on the humming wires or carnage visors. So it's just like literally just like crazy yeah. music, which yeah. for me, like my favorite stuff always. Like I loved that stuff. Like, cause it was also a way for like partially musically. I loved it cause it was always freer and weirder even than the music that, that drew me in. Um, we did our B-sides at John Fox's studio in Shoreditch oh, Garden I, I, Studios. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and we go in there on a Friday, and we come out on a Sunday, Monday morning, Sunday night, and we knew we had to get the B side, extra track for the twelve inch, and maybe one other. So we work on we had the, the premise of three written, recorded, mixed, yeah. usually with whatever was lying around in the studio as well. You know, if right. there was a kind of piano or for humming wires, Einstein Zender Neubarten left all the metal work. Ah. You leave the grinder as well. Just big kick scaffolding tubes and bits of metal. You just worked on the spot, really, yeah. hoping you'd finish by uh, by Sunday night. <laughs> when we we'd finished pornography and we went back and we started, we thought, okay, the band fell apart and it was just me and Robert, and we decided, well, okay, we'll make a single. And to get the the B side, I end up just like playing the stairs in the bottom of. Um, island studios like what was that place called the bunker or somewhere they've done a lot of reggae stuff it just smelled like dope everywhere all the time but we were like okay well now we're gonna do the b-side okay so just play the stairs Lo. play the stairs so i played the stairs recorded that put it through a whole load of stuff yeah you just we were allowed to go nuts and we do the sort of things we would do in rehearsals where we were just having fun you know we weren't all sitting in the corner with you know tears and candles all the time want to do something that excites you you know that just have fun i think that's that's yeah. key the, the the way where we come from the the gang mentality the 
the exclusivity. Right. That's also the point, because if you don't have that, how can you be open enough, you know, naked enough, if you like, to be able to put you out there if you don't trust the people that you're with implicitly, you know? It's it's why the idea of making a band like, oh, we'll get the best drummer, best guitarist, best singer, uh, best bass player, keyboard, it never works ever in a million oh, years. Journey. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a journey in Toto. They were both bands made of session. Right. Like session killers, you know? But it like never moved me. You know, it's it's like the grain of uh, sand in the oyster. You know, that's what makes the pearl. And if everybody's just, you know, perfectly round and what you get is music without any character, you know, and the character is what you look for, something different, you know? When you're kids and you start playing music together, you just sit around and listen to like, you know, the music that you love and that you're inspired yeah. by that yeah. seems otherworldly and intimidating. And then you f you try your best to rip it off in some way, and the way you get it wrong is the best. Yeah, and that becomes you. It's the beauty of the mistakes we make, right? The serendipitous moments. Right. When you start, you're not really good at doing lots of things, so you kind of make your version of it. You know, we did that in The Cure. I couldn't play very complicated drum fills, so I decided to keep it very simple. And that ended up being something that, like a trademark, I suppose. You know, a professional, there are people around you that stop you from getting it wrong, that protect you from those mistakes. And yeah. those mistakes are kind of what matters. There's something great about trying to get it right. Yeah. And being wrong, and that's what your sound is. My favorite game mm. is how long ago was that? And what, and from then back, what's that? Uh, like I'm now getting back involved with my label and, and like starting up again, the community of people around me. And like when I started DFA, it was 20 years ago. Yeah. Like when did you first play with the Banshees? It was 1979. So 1999, you already called it quits. That was shorter ago from the end of the Banshees to your first time than I am to the beginning of my label, which seems crazy to me. Yeah. It times compressing in this way. I think culture is moving slower. But you could be like, I could be at a party today and hear the Stooges Funhouse and be like, okay, great. Doesn't feel dated. It feels right. You, you feel like you're in a room full of pretty cool people if they're playing Funhouse. Like you don't feel like, oh, it's dad. You know, it's like, it feels like, <laughs> it feels awesome. And that's what, 1969. Yeah. So yeah. that's like, before that is what, 1908, you know, like, you know, I mean, like, or 1918, yeah. the same like too, time really. from Funhouse to now is like the first world war. Yeah. If you had played the Stooges to someone at that time, they would have like screamed and covered their ears. But I think things have actually slowed down a bit. I think punk did part of part. It actually did what it set out to do. Mm. which was kind of just explode music. Think about it, punk and then post-punk was like 40 minutes later. You know, the ink isn't even wet on pressing the Sex Pistols records and you have public image records coming out. Right. 
And that's like, that to me, like public image is like, th that's like when you're like, okay, that's post-punk clearly because it's the same guy. Like here you have like the guy and then the guy and it's in a suit with makeup on and looking like weirdly model presented. And you know, if nothing could be more like, oh, that's over yeah. than that gesture. I saw a kid the other day, right. maybe 22, driving around in Brooklyn with a big SUV, pumping hip hop with auto-tune vocals. And I was like, his dad could have done the exact same thing 20 years ago. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, even hip hop, a music that like reinvented itself minutes after something happened. Like it would be like, somebody would, would say a verse over a beat and the next guy would come up and try to be like, that was old. Mm -hmm. The thing that happened 18 seconds ago is old. This is the new shit right now. And like constantly reinvent itself. It kind of has actually even hit this stasis, like where we're really still using auto-tune vocals. Like it's like, that's yeah. a, that's a share technique from the late nineties. Right. Just mm -hmm. like hung on. It's happening in a lot of lot of spheres of life. I'm reading that book, uh, Evil Geniuses, you know, and it's happened in like the, the, the political, everything it's happened. It's just like stopped, you know. If you look back at some things in the 90s, the country's exactly the same, you know, the world, the cultural thing's exactly the same now. Whereas when we were in the 70s, you know, rock and roll, when it first started, was only like 20 years before, but it was completely, you know, a different world. And now it's just like... Ugh. We're stuck. So where do we go? I mean, I think what, you know, you go to a certain degree inward. It's like also music is unrooted from some of its other meanings. Yeah. It's no longer the protest medium. Right. It's no longer the personal identification medium. Mm -hmm. It's no longer where you get all your style. Like when I was a kid, it's like, I was like, the, yes, the B-52s and the Clash. Yeah, fine. They're right. weird. It's not... Right. Like I was okay with anything that wasn't like Bon Jovi or like <laughs> right, yeah, wasn't like Three Dog Night and, yeah. and what was on the radio. Like I was just happy for anything that was different. And so you got this like, you know, I'm going to a show and it's like Bad Brains, and then the next night I'm going to see the Violent Femmes, and the next night like things that like on paper would be so incongruous. And I think yeah. that's going to be harder to pull off now because you can get your own special channel. Right. Just for you, yeah. I'd always been thinking of life as a sort of like linear process with, you know, you do one thing and then another thing happens and another thing happens. You get married and you have a child and you do another thing and another thing happens. And it's not like that at all. I felt it's like, this concentric circles, you know, and you just fall off of one onto the other to the next one. We have to also remember, you both found some success young. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. you landed in your thing. Yeah. I did not. <laughs> like, right. I mean, the first time I made a living, the first time that I didn't pay to make music, the first time that, like, at the end of the year, I didn't have to have a job that wasn't making music. I was 35. So 
it's like I have this. I always joke that I do, there's no photos of me young and thin in my band. <laughs> like I never have to deal with that thing where like, oh geez, I just see the old photos of us and look at me. Never happened because I was thirty something and two hundred and twenty pounds when we started. Like that's who I like. I, like it's this joke like with that that we always joke about that we skipped over the big existential thing that you go through when suddenly you're like i was like i was a kid yeah. and I was, fuck everybody and then i did this stupid thing that everybody thought was a terrible idea and look at me i'm on a plane like you know like yeah. and then then at some point you're like this will clearly go on forever exactly as it is yeah. what earth could ever stop this train yeah and being like oh um yeah, I had that illusion. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? Mm. I think when you succeed in an artistic field, yeah. a certain part of you grows a lot. Like you have these crazy experiences, and you're like all over the world, and you think about what you, where you came from, and this like really right. narrow world, and suddenly you're like in Kyoto, and like like you're eating food that your family would be horrified by, and you know you feel very worldly. Yes, but in another way, you are frozen at that age right is there any truth in laying yourself open to music yeah may in some may in some way keep you in your childhood it's like your childhood dream and it becomes your reality yes you start you become peter pan like you, you become you st stay in that in that youth because growing up is being gr being wrong makes you grow up yeah. Like being yeah. eating shit grows you up. Like that's why kids grow you up. I think because, because kids are just like, kids don't give a shit. Like they shit their pants and they're not waiting till you're done with your inspiration. <laughs> they just shat their pants and that's your fucking problem. Yeah. So like that kid thing of like, fuck you guys, I'm doing my thing. The longer that goes on, the longer you're, you're still a kid. Yeah. Good mm -hmm. ways and the bad ways. And like, I was like holding, literally I had like a little bag of kid dust that every year I'd be like, throw that away. Yeah. Like I just kept this little bag and I used to joke that like I said, I only have so many, so much kindling left. Oh, <laughs> goodness. James, that, that is, you know, that's what I told my psychotherapist when everything had blown up, everything had yeah. gone, you know, the marriage, the band, the last vestiges everything had gone and i was sitting there with this guy in, in the consulting room because i thought better talk to somebody about this and i said to him it feels like there's a little vial inside of me with the pure essence of me and if i just open the top once more to check that's it i'm gone there's been nothing left and that vial that essence was probably me at 15. yeah and since that point, when I was dreaming of it, around about 20, I mean, I joined 79, so I'll be 22. But I was already with the slits when I was 21. So yeah. I, I'd stopped. And I had to start learning how to be who I am, yeah. whoever I am. Right. <laughs> I think that's hard. I mean, it, it's clear that it's hard because history is strewn with like fallen soldiers on that hill. Like that's like a heart that's a lot of people don't make it out of that place. And like, as, as, as much as it sucked to just 
eat shit for a long time. In some ways, I don't know. Like I was, I, I think it's the best thing ever happened to me because I was the worst. Like I was so cocky. Mm-hmm. Like, so, I mean, I wasn't arrogant in this. I wasn't like type A arrogant. I was quietly alone waiting. Like you'll all fucking see. <laughs> like I know I'm, I'm the weird kid in my town, but you're all going to fucking see. Like wait till I get out of this town and you'll all see. And I'm going to just be like, validation would have made me, would have calcified my stubbornness. It is a thing to behold as it is. Uh, Like, so it's like, at least now it's a bit of a ruin. Uh, But like, I I can't imagine what, what anxiety I would have fallen prey to like the fear of it going because I experience it now. Like one of the reasons I, one of the reasons I tried to scuttle the band was because I was feeling, I could feel that anxiety creeping in. Yeah. What if the next record doesn't work? What if, what if someone tries to take this away from me? What if I lose this? And I didn't like that. Cause I was like, Oh, that's not a good place to be. That's not a good place to make music from. And so I was like, I'm done. And I'd met my now wife and I was like, I, I, I want to go build a life. And I don't know that I can do it while building this because this takes every bit of me. Like this, the kind of selfishness that's required here isn't compatible with like developing a life with someone. And so she had quit her job and I quit my job essentially. And we just kind of like built a life together. Uh, I thought I could deny, I mean, it was very childish of me to think like, I'm like, okay, well, I'm just never going to make music again. That's just fine. I'll just run a restaurant. That's what I did. I, for five years, I, I fixed air conditioning and, uh, I went for uh, I went for an interview as a, a motorcycle courier in London. Really? Oh yeah, I moved over to England having lived fifteen years yeah. in France. You know, is- isolated and living that lifestyle. I don't know what lifestyle it was. It was a big house and nobody in it yeah. really. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I thought oh, I need to make some money, so I started selling my gear off, and then I got the I passed my motorcycle test, which was classic midlife, you know. And then I got on the train from just outside north of London and went for the interview, you know, with all these Polish guys, these ace riders. Yeah. And I, I'm a novice. And I hit like London midday traffic. And they said the guys afterwards were going, okay, where? You, you know, you've got the job. When do you want to start? I went, can I, can, can I think about that for a moment? <laughs> uh, I didn't go back. I never bought a motorcycle. I still have the crash, you know, I still have the safety helmets, but. I never rode again. Yeah, you know that's, that must be your road to Damascus moment. You know, I had mine out here in the middle of the desert when I first got here. No, what am I? Who am I fooling myself? I have to go back and do this. I have to quell the beast some more. You know, we can't escape. You know, it's kind of like Captain Ahab. You know, it's like you know you got to at some point you got to confront Moby Dick. You know. I mean, I think success is an interesting challenge. Yes. When you're in a thing that's like chugging along and you know how each other work and you're in a successful band that's moving along, you know, like, okay, we got to get some time in the studio. You can say things like that. Someone will be like, you know, you guys need some time in the studio. We need to, you need to get another record together. And what this is a career mm. thing. No one ever comes to you and says like creatively, you guys really need to get in the studio. Someone, what they mean is the shines come off the last record. Have you heard the new record by your contemporaries? The production is moving on. 
if you don't want to be left behind, you've got to go back in the studio and make something. You've got to address the new challenge right? from a career position. That transition from like, let's go make music to we got to go make music is really subtle. Yeah. Like what, how do I get people to feel that again? That's, that's the kind of the first place you go. Yeah. As opposed to this unconscious thing of like, hey, I'm going to go do the thing and it always works out. Which is where we were at the very beginning. We'll just go and do our thing and it works out. You know, if I think about it from 19 to about 23, that's what we did. Yeah. And it was kind of, it worked. And it's still. You were riding zeitgeist that you didn't know was there. Right. Like sitting there in like a train. Yeah. And like everyone's sitting doing nothing. And all you got to do is get up and walk forward a few cars. And you're fucking going like a rocket. Right. If you're willing to go write some song, like you're in a moment that's moving and you're in that moment. Right. So it's already propelling mm. you a bit. And like when you get off of that, it's very, I think it's really psychologically so hard to know, like now you have to ask questions from zero. Yeah. And you're left, and you're left with yourself. Yeah. You, know? you didn't have to ask questions before you're like. It's true. You have to have a point of questioning. I, I, had, that, I had that moment, a, a kind of strange moment, I, when I landed in Berlin and I was, I was 50. I had my 50th birthday floating on a canal right. in, a, in a boat, mind you. Um, yeah, not on your back. No. I'd done that one 20 years earlier, probably, <laughs> face down. <laughs> and I'm just, I, I'm watching this functioning stuff, like the people on the train are all around me. And I feel like, you know, when you see one of those videos where it's like time lapse and somebody's walking backwards, I felt like the person who's static while the world's going on around them. It's taken me a, a long time. And I don't mean to like say I've caught up with everybody, but that my position is okay. Yeah. The static role, this calm interior is okay today. And the craziness just continues, but it's not making me anxious. Peace of mind, right? Yeah. Well, and also you have the, the advantage of being younger like, I mean, you've met people your age and you have that, you've had the moment that all musicians have yeah. where you're talking to someone on a plane and hmm. you're, you see them and they're like a business person. I mean, they're older than you and they see you and you're younger than them. And then you start talking and you start talking about, well, what do you do? Oh, oh wow. That's amazing. Oh, I do this. And then eventually they say a thing like, well, I mean, you can do that. I mean, when I, I was younger and then they look at you and they go, but you're older than me, aren't you? Like when something happens, like I am 50, I'm absolutely 50. There's no way if you look at me, you're going to think I'm younger than 50 or older than 50. Like I'm 50. Yeah, I got a certain amount of wrinkles, a certain amount of gray hair. I'm 50. I'm like classically 50, but that's physical. Mm. And the way that people present themselves, the way they carry themselves, just the way that your physical, your energy is. Mm. Right these conversations with people where I'm sitting there talking to them and they say to me like, like, Oh, well, if I was your age, I would do the thing. And then they look at me and I'm like, I'm like, I'm 15 years older. Than you. <laughs> like I'll be, they'll be 35 and they'll suddenly look at, they'll look at each other. And I'm like, you don't have any wrinkles. And they're like, you have wrinkles and gray hair. But I think I've just spent this last hour talking to you, assuming you're significantly younger than me. And I conversely have had that same experience talking to them where they seem quite old. 
and as a kid, like I think I always admired old like old painters and stuff like that that had like this like different kind. They were not on a linear track that had any relation to the people around. Me. Right. No. And I think Maybe that creation is the fountain of youth. Then yeah, right? no. it is. I do remember contemporaries from school. I rarely went back home to the little town, but when I did, I met people who I used to wait outside their house for them to come out to play. And I met this guy, and I thought, I mean, he looks like the age my dad was. Is was I, my dad always was always to me. He was around fifty-two. Yeah, that was my dad's age. He woke home. He was always fifty-two. I don't know why. I don't know how old he was when he died. He was about seventy something. But this young guy looked like everybody else in my town. They looked a certain age. Yeah, and they became old around thirty. Or, yeah, know. yeah. Um, I mean, I thought I don't want to do that. No, I've got to, no. I've got to find a way out. But this was the way out, really. I mean, I, I remember the same thing. You know, guys in my town that were like between fifty and sixty were, were like on. They were they were one step close to death. You know, that was it. It was all over. I don't feel like mm. that. Yeah, you know? it's just the relationship to the world around you. Right, like having somewhat of a childish relationship to the world around you is both this amazing thing, right, and also quite dangerous if you don't learn where to where to trim it. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I can attest to that one. There's the obvious ways in which it's dangerous because you have poor impulse control and you don't do things that are right. dangerous. But there's also like kids are the can grow the most, but they can also be the most resistant to seeing their own flaws. And I think sometimes I meet like people who are just like at all times in a case of self-presentation, like an unwilling to just be embarrassing or to be like the way a teenager is just sort of like, shut up, mom. Like, don't, you know, like, and you'll meet people and you're like, you're, dude, you're, you're way too grown up for this. Like, aren't you like, but there are some people who just are lucky or unlucky yeah. in that they have access to themselves. That's different. I like, I know people, I know some actors who have like, like they can cry and they don't feel like they're acting. They just like, and they're a little, they're wild and they're sort of like oral, like oral stage babies. Like, they're just like, I want that. Give me that. Give me, give me, give me, give me. And they, they don't need to be fucked up that crazy. No. Like, I'm absolutely not that person. Like, I'm, I'm kind of like uptight by nature and like historically needed to be pretty fucked up to act out, um, which I learned that there's an easy way to do that, to get yourself all super fucked up. But um, yeah. the trick for me is like learning how to like, access that stuff from a position of like not destroying myself like but i think other people like don't get stuck even though they're unwilling to grow they can continue to because they have such they can just like look down and they see everything they are right like i'm gonna pull this out with confidence and it's got nothing to do with like uh, like whereas for me it's a little bit like the, the voice that says you're doing the right thing this is what who you are follow it is this quiet little voice in me. So I suppose getting older, I've realized sometimes that quiet voice inside you is it's not just the inner critic. Sometimes that quiet voice is right and you should follow it. It's an interesting concept. Maybe the in, that little, that little uh, voice was always there, yeah. but the, the youthful us just didn't want to pay attention to it. No, no. What are you talking about? No, my way's better.
pleasure to talk to you guys. Like, yeah, I judge people about like if I meet them and I think, okay, could I spend, could I spend eternity in a windowless room with this person? Yeah. You know, yeah, you you pass the test. Oh, so, good. Yeah, a really great way to end it. Be like, and no, I think this is two hours is my limit. <laughs> That's it. Um. It's that time of the show, lol. We've got to answer some questions from the fans. Chris Rose. Don't know where Chris is from, but lol, he's got a question. Okay. He says, lol, do you still have and still use your rototoms? Ah, the rototoms. What are rototoms? Well, back in the day, I decided I, I wanted a more unusual drum kit because there was like two kinds of drum kits there. There was... Uh, Ones with tom-toms that had bottom head on, and ones that were called concert toms that had only one head. And that was kind of it, and I was kind of fed up with them. So I saw these things in, uh, I don't know, one of the drum shops in London, rotor toms, which were just a head in a metal frame, and you could tune the drum by moving the head around. And that seemed like a really cool idea to me. And I was sort of inspired a little bit by seen ginger baker on uh this documentary out in uh, africa somewhere and he had a talking drum that he was holding under his arm and by various points of pressure he was changing the tone and you know gibbering at us incomprehensibly and playing it but it was it was really interesting so i thought well i could do something like that on it and then i thought well why don't i just make the whole kit like that which i did except for the kick drum and, and the kick drum and the snare drum Oh yes, the snare drum. That's true. It's very yes, true. Because I, I, I do, know. of course, know what rotor toms are, and the first time I saw them, right. really saw them, was 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 yes. you when I I just joined the Banshees, the Cure were opening, yeah. and I got to see you sound check, and I was that's when I got a close look at this yeah. rack of rotor toms and that huge snare, deep, big, deep right. military marching snare, which I uh, bought off of uh, John Bradbury from the Specials. Ah, nice. He had two of them and he didn't want them because they didn't say he wanted sort of that rude boy high ping sound, you know, and that wasn't going to give it to him. So he sold me both of them. The rotor toms, did they help you to find your sound in a way? Well, they helped me find patterns. I mean, later on in things like All Cats Are Grey on um, Faith, it was, a, it was a compositional tool for me to have the rotor toms. So I, I liked them very much. In fact, the, the rotor tom is there was no, no shell, just the, the hoop which you. Like, like like an old steering wheel, but you could tune to quite specific notes, right? You could get notes going. Yeah, I, I often think that people uh, don't think that uh, they don't think of drums being uh, tuned in a musical way at all. They they sort of imagine that they just sort of they're there. But for a lot of music, you can really enhance it by by tuning your drums to be in in sympathy with the music you're playing. And so rotor toms were much easier to do that for me you know for for the curious music and you imagine then there was only three of us as well so there was a lot of uh, sonic space that you could occupy you weren't going to get drowned out um do i have the rotor toms anymore i don't have my original rotor toms because um all my equipment went into this huge lockup in the middle of uh, john henry's in north london and when i left the band it somehow you know, got transported to a different galaxy. You know, I never saw anything ever again. <laughs> we got another one. Yeah. It's Louis, Louis Caceres. Okay. And um, yeah. for both of us, 
It says, you two must have had your eyes and ears on the other drummers, also playing post-punk goth rock music. What drummer's style or playing did you admire the most? Well, there was two from the, the punk time. I, I mean, I like Jet Black. Jet Black was the drummer with? The Stranglers. Yes. Yeah. I liked his playing very much. And I also liked Tony Chimes before Topper. And that's how I, I would take the first Clash album along to my, my drum teacher, Andy McBride, and tell him, teach me how to play these. Okay. Well, you've already mentioned yeah. one of mine, of course, because my first real taste of, uh, you know, London and and the bands I'd seen from a distance. I'd seen the Ramones. I'd seen right. Talking Heads. I'd seen the Early Pistols in Liverpool. Right. But the band that really kind of took me were, were was the Clash. Oh, okay. And yeah. so when I got the chance, uh, when I was um, oh, the Slits were opening for uh, the Clash on the um, Sort It Out tour, and um, right. so I was a side stage every night watching Topper. Amazing, just. So watching really what I didn't know at the time, but I know now looking back, I was watching uh, a, a, an exemplary lesson in what drumming, being a drummer in a band was all about. Right. Yeah, that was great. And he's a big help to me. So, yeah, I, I had a secret admiration. And the other guy was, um, and you can, you can probably tell me his name, um, it's the drummer with XTC. Oh, uh, Terry Chambers. It is Terry Chambers. I was thinking of Martin Chambers, who's in yeah. The Pretenders still. Yeah, my ter Terry Chambers was really, really good as I, well. I mean, he had a big kit, big toms. The gigantic yeah. toms. Gigantic toms that Andy Partridge used to stick his yep. head inside. But on stage, it, which is kind of it, nuts. I still but. listen to, because I remember this, remember the songs, and I listen back now with new ears, like a drummer looking back at drums yeah. and going, he was so inventive. He made beats that, yeah. and I, I'm sure, got to me. They got to me in a way I thought, okay, there's something going on here that's really quite different. And um, I could still listen to Only Making Plans for Nigel and try and figure out how the drums go in. You know? <laughs> Um, yeah. You know, I just thought I just thought of another, I thought of another drummer from that time that was almost certainly an influence because it, it was the first I'd heard any of that music recorded. It was John Mayer with the Buscocks. Oh yes, yes, absolutely. And yeah. I was hearing like that was that song. It was called. Was it called Heartbeat? And I, I, something like that. Yeah. And I, yeah. he, he was also very flat cymbals. It looked and sounded a lot like Clem Burke's kit. Right, right. Two, two very different approaches to drumming. You know, I remember, Budgie, going to see the Buzzcocks with you and Sue and Severin one night up in Manchester. We had a night off and we all went down to see them. Remember wow. that? Carry on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, that's about all I actually remember of it. So Yes, I want to remember it. I want to remember. Yes, of course I remember it. I was there. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, great night out. <laughs> yes. I had many good nights out. Me and Pete Shelley had yeah. some great nights. I can't remember any of them. They were great, though. Yeah. Curious Creatures is created and presented by Bol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Spare. Social media, Margie Taylor. 
Art and logo design, Justin Thomas K. Music production, Jack Knife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. I love saying www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. <laughs> and you can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, <laughs> at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter, at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram and at doubleelvisfm on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2021.